Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. dramatic opening theme is called Main Title, Monsters Appear in Yokohama. It's from the movie Ghidorah by Akira Afukabe, and you can find it on the Best of Godzilla 1954-1975, available on iTunes. I have that on my iPod or my iPhone. I've had it for a very long time. That gets a lot of play. I, that's one of the great soundtracks I've got in my collection. Yeah, the music from all three of these movies is great. We've got a new Godzilla film coming out at the end of May. Godzilla King of Monsters. It's the second, I guess, in a planned trilogy, at least as of right now. Or is it quadrology? I don't know. It's the sequel to Godzilla. It's not a sequel to Kong Skull Island, but we're getting that next year when we get King Kong vs. Godzilla. It's an interesting universe, but we've got a lot of monsters that are going to be in this one. And we know of at least three, but I've been told there's a lot more than that. We have Rodan, we have Mothra, and we have Ghidra. Now, let's just start right off and say, yes, these monsters have different names depending on which version you're watching. The English version, the Japanese version. Is it Rodan? Is it Radon? Is it Mosra? Is it Mothra? Is it Ghidra? Is it Ghidorah? Is it Ghidra? We're probably going to fluctuate, and we're probably going to butcher a lot of names in this episode. You and I are not kaiju experts, but we love the big monster flicks, and it doesn't get any bigger than the Godzilla films. And we do get a visit from Godzilla in one of these three films, but we are going to take a look at Rodan, Mothra, and Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and kind of get us in the mood for the big kaiju fest that we're going to have at the end of the month. I did pretty good with Akira Afukabe, though. Yeah. I, I practiced. Yes, and that's I, I actually that's just a Kira Fukabe. It's just you, it rattles off, you know, yes. you just immediately songs immediately come to my mind. If that name is mentioned, I'm hearing Mosara. <laughs> I said I wouldn't do it, but I did it. There you go. I annoy I, I, I annoy multiple people with my, my singing of Mosra and I only know that word to the song and I will make up random other lyrics as it goes along. I love the music, so yeah, and, warning to everybody that uh, Richard may break into song at any point. At here. any point, I, I, you know, it's that inner, inner, you know, fairy twin in me just coming to, ready to burst out and break out in song. So it just dawned on me. I can't remember the last time in one of the podcasts we introduced ourselves. So maybe we should do that. This is episode thirty-one of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, and I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club, and I'm Richard Chamberlain from KC Cinephile and Monster Movie Kid. We will call this meeting to order. First thing, Richard, and I'm very excited. We have quite a few new members to our Classic Horrors 
Club Facebook group. This is very exciting. I'm going to rattle off these names right now. Welcome to the group. We have John Fight, Pete Quint, Jose Antonio Mendez, Albert Smith, Eric Cheatwood, Tim Goble, Javad Bakshi, Basil Grimsby, Dezo Blasco Clare, Strongford Stern, and Witch Doctor Films, which I believe is connected with Matthew Parmenter, right? Yes, yes, that's his. Uh, you know, he and I believe another partner make low-budget films, actually, and so um, you know, he's that's his his little side venture. So, welcome everybody. It's great to have you. We've had some good conversation. Uh, a lot of things were called to our attention through this Facebook group this month. For example, Joe Carson let us know that a version of Mothra is coming to Blu-ray from, I believe, Mill Creek. It looks like a big super-duper edition uh, that's coming soon. I don't remember the date. Maybe July? I do have it written down as I go through my notes. It is coming out July 9th. Ah, very good. $25, too, for a steelbook. It's going to be a, a nice addition if you don't already have it. Some of these movies are hard to find right now, and I think some of them we may be getting from Criterion at some point. But That's right. Whatever happened to those? They all... You know, Criterion, is, they have the rights to them, and, and I know they put them on their streaming channel, and then their streaming channel went away, and then it's come back now. They've got a new streaming channel. I haven't really heard anything about it. I have no idea you know, what they've got on it, but I'm assuming that they've got those movies on there again. Beyond that, I've heard nothing about any type of official releases in the States. So some of these movies are hard to find, even like in, in recent editions that came out in the last 10 plus years, 10, 15 years, like from classic media. There's just a lot of out-of-print stuff. And if you want to find these uh, on a copy for yourself, you're going to have to shop around, and we'll talk about that. Joe also let us know that uh, shooting has wrapped on... Godzilla versus Kong, which I find unusual, seeing as how Godzilla King of the Monsters hasn't even opened yet. Did they film it back to back? I'm not sure. It seems like they maybe they might like, have. They might have done an Avengers thing yeah. because you know they Avengers was filming in 2017. Avengers Endgame was filming that far back, and it wrapped you know quite a long time ago. So it's possible. We'll come back to the Facebook group in a couple of minutes when we talk about feedback from the last episode, but we have some old business, some things we need to clear up that we weren't sure on last time. Uh, I just confirmed when Fangoria magazine began, and issue one came out in August of 1979. We were wondering that for some reason. Uh, I think maybe we wondered if The Omen was covered in Fangoria. Uh, it would not have been since it didn't start till 1979. And they've just they've started publishing again. Yes. So. And coincidentally, the cover of the first issue of Fangoria was Godzilla. We wondered if Famous Monsters ever co covered The Omen. And I reached out to Kenny, who's been doing the Famous Monsters segment on Monster Kid Radio. And he looked in his handy-dandy index, which must be wonderful, because within less than a minute, he was able to search and tell me if the omen... It was mentioned in issue 118 in 1975. Uh, the cover story was 20 mi million miles to Earth, but he said it was barely a mention, and it was already at that time in context of there possibly being a sequel to the omen. So no official coverage of the movie. However, there was coverage in other magazines that came out in 76. House of Hammer, number 7, from January 77. 
Children of the Night, number three, from 1977, and then Cinefantastique, a great, great magazine. They had two. Uh, in issue 18, they had a review of the movie, and then in issue 19 was a great cover story with a, a lot of articles about filming The Omen. So it did have some coverage. I think we were wondering how would we have known about The Omen at that time unless we saw a TV commercial or something. Was there any publicity in magazines? And there were some other magazines besides Famous Monsters that were covering it. You were correct, but just to confirm, it was Lee Grant that was blacklisted, not Lee Remick. Lee Grant was the one from Damien Omen 2. And then finally, we talked about the Damien TV series, which I had seen and liked. It is not available on Netflix. However, it is available on Hulu and Amazon Prime. I still recommend, if possible, watching that television series. It, to me, was a much more satisfactory continuation of the story than either of the sequels of The Omen. Speaking of The Omen, we do have uh, feedback from last episode. Rob Kelly from Fire & Water Podcast Network left us a voicemail. He did that by calling 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Hi. Rob Kelly from the Fire & Water Podcast Network calling you back again. Sorry I have in the last couple of episodes of you have been covering some movies. I haven't caught up yet. But I wanted to just give you a couple comments on your Omen trilogy. That was super fun. Uh, I lo- I really kind of love the Omen movies, even though uh, the second one isn't really very good, and the third one I haven't seen in a long time. But the first one I think is a genuine classic. Uh, it's a really, really great, scary movie, and so I'm glad you finally got a chance to talk about it. Um, sort of one fun. We came out when I was five years old, and my parents took me to it to a drive-in. At years old, uh, I can't. You know, they were. I can't believe they they did that. But it turns out that they couldn't get a babysitter to see the omen, so they brought me along. And I still remember being in the back seat, watching that little kid driving around on his tricycle, knocking uh, Lee Remick off the railing. It just terrified me. And so, yeah, I saw that movie when I was five. Uh, kind of a bonus uh, last year when uh, Chris Franklin and I got to interview Richard Donner for our show, Superman Movie Minute. Uh, I got to tell him that story because, of course, as you pointed out, did that movie, and uh, he was delighted uh, that uh, five-year-old saw that movie. Just thought that was the funniest thing he asked me. I don't remember whether it did or not, but uh, anyway, it was it was sort of like incredible to tell the man I had seen it when I was five years old. Completely inappropriate. So time is a flat circle. Anyway, really enjoyed the show. I'm really glad you covered these movies. Uh, they are. Uh, a big part of, like, 70s and early 80s horror, so it was a blast. Always enjoy the show, and thanks so much. See you guys later. Bye. Thanks, Rob. We had heard the story about you seeing The Omen as a young child, young impressionable child, and I appreciate the the further detail about seeing it at the drive-in and everything. Uh, that's just fantastic. Nothing wrong with that at all. And, yes, that's an airplane. You might be hearing in the background. We have the window open. It's a beautiful day. We apologize up front if there's any random background noises. We're, that sounded we're, like the universal airplane that flies around the It did, the kind of. It did, yeah. And I will say that we reached out in advance to a couple of people to give their thoughts on the three movies we're going to talk about. We are literally, as we speak, receiving some voicemails, and I think we'll just post that at the end. 
just real quick, a couple of other comments on the Facebook group page. Joe Carson, again, complimented us on the Omen episode, said it was a very good episode. He also included a link to an Omen wiki, uh, which is just Mm. awesome. I guess there's probably a wiki for anything these days. It seems like there is, yeah. But uh, that, that was really cool to look out look at. Rob Kelly talked about Planet of the Apes is to the Omen as Beneath the Planet of the Apes is to Damien Omen 2. Each first installment is a classic, and the second is a grab bag of random moments that lean much more heavily into giving the audience what it wants from the genre. We had a suggestion from Anthony Walker that in this episode we should include Destroy All Monsters. And Anthony, we didn't quite get to that. We talked about doing it and maybe just watching it and mentioning it. But I think when we get to Ghidra, you'll see that we got more monsters than I had bargained for. I didn't realize it was going to be a big old monster rally. So hopefully that, that gives you a little bit closer to destroy all monsters. Maybe we'll do another Godzilla maybe next year um, when King Kong versus Godzilla comes out. Of course, the the logical thing is for us to... To cover the original King Kong versus Godzilla and maybe throw in a few other, you know, monster bashes in there, depending on who we see in, in this new movie. Because we, as we know that there's going to be more monsters than the three that we know besides Godzilla. And there also may be uh, more monsters in next year's as well. So, How do you feel about the fact that there's going to be original monsters in it? I think we've talked about this before. But, you know, in the mix of Mothra and Rodan, there are going to be original monsters. You know, I don't have a problem with it. It depends on how well it's done. Um, You know, I know a lot of people, the reactions to the first movie was mixed. I actually liked the first movie. I liked it better than Shin Godzilla. I, I... I had issues with Shin Godzilla, and I know that movie is also very polarizing. There's some people who love it because of all of its political undertones and all of that, you know, that that's part of that film. There's parts of that movie I like. There's parts that, to me, seem to really bog the film down. The first Godzilla movie, I liked it. I mean, it, it was entertaining. It could have been better. Yeah, we could have got a little, you know, bit more of the monster. But I think people tend to forget that that when you look at these, the classic, even the classic Godzilla monsters, I mean, sometimes you're like 45 minutes into the movie before we really get the monsters proper. And usually the last 30, you know, plus minutes is, is where all the big monster action takes place. Not all the time, but a lot of them, you get a lot of plot before you get the monster. And so I think that they had to do that. They had to kind of build up to it. And I think that they did a good job. I think if they do monsters that are in the tradition of, of what we've seen before and go well with Mothra and Rodan and, and Ghidra, then I'm okay with introducing new ones. They, they have Toho's blessing, apparently, uh, even though Toho is reportedly going to throw their hat back in and start making movies again next year. I really haven't heard much more about what they have officially planned other than they want to start making movies again and create a universe that's similar to the Marvel Universe. Toho hasn't been screaming and hollering that they're not happy with what's been done so far, so I would suspect that we're going to get monsters that are hopefully in the in the same vein. If they're a big departure, then that might be a, that might be a problem. Yeah, I didn't really care for the monsters. I can't remember what they were called in the first Godzilla, the sort of flat, triangular-headed monsters. I don't know. They're fine. It's just... They were okay. I mean, they... I, I'm not really looking forward to new monsters. I'd rather just see the versions of the 
existing monsters. Well, and you, and you get so many monsters in a film, then, you know, how long are we going to see these monsters? Are they going to be very briefly? I'm thinking of some of the big monster bashes that even Toho did. Sometimes when you're throwing in, like some of those last movies they did, like Final Wars, I mean, some of those monsters were just on screen for a very short amount of time. It was a fun, oh my gosh, there it is kind of moment, but you're seeing monsters that were second tier, third tier monsters, and it was more so just a homage and a love letter to the fans. I think it really depends on how well it's done. I, I my, I'm keeping. I don't want to get my expectations too high on the new film because I'm afraid if I do, then I'll be disappointed. But I was pleasantly surprised with the first one, so I'm kind of going in with middle of the road expectations, willing to give them a chance. I really loved Kong Skull Island, uh, and it surprised me at the end when they threw in the monster references. So uh, I know a lot of people again. Kong Skull Island was kind of polarizing as well. Some people loved it. Some people didn't like it. I enjoyed it for what it was. It entertained me, and that's what I went there to, to see. I think you were probably a little less... No, I liked it a lot. Do you, do you, do you yeah. like that? I can't remember. Yeah. Okay. And it had original monsters, too. It did. I, I think I, they worked a little better there, maybe, this sort of the spider things. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm anxious to see what we got going on with it. I think... I think they got a great cast, and uh, we'll just we'll see what they can pull off. Yeah, and you mentioned the monsters not appearing for some time during the running time, and I think that's the case with two of our three movies that we're watching. And I just want to make a catty comment that, believe it or not, I think movie makers do like to try to build characters and have some kind of story uh, and develop to give it some sort of substance or emotional aspect before the monsters arrive. And like I say, believe it or not, because it seems like a lot of times they don't do that, but I, I think that's an admirable attempt when they do that just to make it more, more substance than just, uh, you know, monsters fighting. Although, let's be honest, that's probably really all we want. Well, I think the two, at least two of the three movies that we're covering this week, they were coming in the very early part of the monster cycle. And there was clearly more attention given to plot and to, you know, introducing the monsters. By the time you get to the 1970s and the Godzilla flicks coming out, I love them. I, you know, I absolutely love Godzilla. I've seen all, I've seen all the Godzilla films and I've seen, I believe, 99% of the, of the, you know, kaiju films that Toho did. There's a couple, like, I still haven't seen Varan the Unbelievable I have it. I just haven't seen it. By the time you get to the 70s, I mean, it was certainly a little bit goofier. Certainly, Godzilla went through a cycle where he got a lot more comical. I mean, he's dancing a jig when he beats a monster. The one where he talks, you know, um, the low point is clearly Godzilla's revenge or all monsters attack where it's what his son... Minya or Tadzilla, whatever they call him, shrinks down to human size. I mean, oh, that movie. I struggle with that movie. As much as I, I love Godzilla, that one, I you know, every time I, I go through all the Godzilla films and watch them through chronologically, and I've done that several times, I get to that one and I'm like, all right, here we go. You know, and I, I think maybe I'll find something more redeeming. I have yet to find <laughs> anything redeeming about that one. But I, th- I think, yeah, the early films were definitely heavier on plot and trying to logically introduce the monsters whereas 
and later films, monsters were just kind of popping up. That's kind of where I wanted to start with these movies, kind of go through uh, uh, sort of the timeline or history. But let's go ahead and take a break. Let's listen to the trailer for the first movie, 1956's Rodan. Monster of is a skyscraper. When he moves, the whole earth quivers and quakes, and an abyss of horror opens up. See these prehistoric beasts emerge from the bowels of the earth after 200 million years to devastate mankind. Supersonic jets cannot catch him. Rockets cannot stop him. Armored tanks are helpless before him. Even guided missiles are powerless. See Rodan destroy a modern city, leveling it to the earth with a killing airstream of his mighty wings. Nothing can stop him. Nothing escapes this monstrous beast of evil. men disappear on the job at a Japanese coal mine. When one of their bodies is discovered face down in the water, it doesn't appear that he drowned. It appears he was slaughtered. The prehistoric insects responsible for his death are mere annoyances when compared to the creature that rises following an earthquake. Rodan, a giant pteranodon. After creating damaging winds soaring through the sky, Rodan and his mate appear to hibernate in a dormant volcano and the military devises an explosive plan to destroy them. Richard, when we started watching these movies, I kind of wanted to look back on the timeline and see where they fell. And I, 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 I've looked at this many times, but I usually forget. And really, depending what you include in this Godzilla universe or not, Rodan was really only the third kaiju movie. Uh, 1954, of course, was the original Godzilla a year later was the sequel, Godzilla Raids Again, and then in 1956 came Rodan. So it is, like you mentioned, one of the early ones. It is somewhat serious. I think it's arguably more intense and scary. Uh, not that it's, you know, an all-out horror fest, but it definitely is a movie that's in the minority for its tone once you get on with the series. And I think it's important to note that um, some of these films, not what, really what we're talking about this week, but some of these films have a different release schedule in the United States. In the United States, Rodan was the second film released. 
because Godzilla Raids Again didn't get released in the States until 1959. I don't know for sure what year Rodan was released, but Godzilla or Gojira, the original, was released in 54 in Japan, but didn't get released in the States until 56. So some of these release dates... In fact, I think when you get to the 1960s, I think it's Invasion of the Astro Monster. It had a five-year delay before getting released in the States. Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster didn't get released for, I believe, decades over in Germany. Everyone's experience with these films is going to be a little bit different. And for the longest time, the only thing we had were the English dubs. That's, that's changed in recent years where we're now finally able to see I think for most of the most of the films, I think there's still a few, like maybe Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster is one that I think that has not had a Japanese release. King Kong vs. Godzilla hasn't had an official release here in the States, although I do have a copy of, of the Japanese version. So some of these films, you saw the, the, the English dub version. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So I'm talking about just the timeline of when they were made, but even for this episode... I say unfortunately because I would much prefer to see the originals, but I was only able to watch the American dubbed versions of all three. You, I believe, saw... We saw the same Rodan, but you saw the original other two. Right. I Unfortunately, I did not get Rodan when Classic Media put it out. It was paired with War of the Gargantuas. And I don't know why I didn't get that. I got all of the others that they put out. For, for some reason, I didn't get that one. And it's selling for over $100 now. And even the... Uh, and I forget which version it was, um, the Sony version from 2002, which was the DVD I have, even that is, is out of print and going for $45. Well, let's dig in and start talking about Rodan. Maybe we'll come back to this timeline then when we get to the next movie. But uh, how did you like Rodan? You know, I, it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, I picked up the DVD probably shortly after it was released back in 2002. I think it's been at least a decade since I've seen it. A lot of it, honestly, was new to me. There's bits and pieces I remember, but because it's been so long and I've seen a movie or two since then, it was almost like a new experience for me, and I really enjoyed it. I I was really pleasantly surprised at how more serious and how just kind of darker that it was compared to other Godzilla films, which, again, we've talked about a bit more lighthearted. And I really liked that about Rodan. It really felt like a good, really, I think one of the one of the best of the giant monster movies in general made in the 1950s. Once you get past the the prologue that the Americans threw at the beginning of it, that really has nothing to do with the rest of the film. They had to do the uh, atomic. They had to tie it into atomic bomb testing, which is not part of the of the the real movie itself. So once you get past that, you, you can get into the real film. And I think that uh, that that's where the things really kind of click. I really want to see the Japanese version of this. So I, hopefully at some point, we, Shout Factory or Mill Creek, whoever has the rights to, to release these, and that seems to fluctuate with the wind. But uh, hopefully we can get a, a new version of that sometime soon and make it more readily available. I really want to add that version to my collection. I believe Monster Kid Radio did Rodan, and I had never seen it, shamefully. And this is within the last... It's been since I've been doing ClassicHorrors.club. So I watched it, and I, I take notes when I watch movies for if I'm going to write about them or if we're going to talk about them. 
And so when I wanted to rewatch Rodan, I thought, well, I'll just pull out those notes and kind of add to them and I won't have to start over. I must have seen the original Japanese version because as I was taking notes, I could easily spot the differences. Because mm. I'm like, that didn't happen in the original version. It took me a little while to figure out. I thought, oh, maybe I didn't take very good notes or something. But there are some significant, well, they're subtle, but yet significant. So, yeah, you say it starts with the narration, and, and it does. It talks about the testing of nuclear weapons, and then it actually shows the explosion of a hydrogen bomb and talks about destruction was total and complete. What is the aftermath? This is a story of the aftermath. Well, in the American version, nothing's ever mentioned again, like you said, about yeah. Atomic. In fact, when they explain what Rodan is, you know, it's just a, a creature from the past that's been awoken. And so that there is a disparity there. But I'm pretty sure in the original Japanese, they do tie it back to the Atomic. Okay. And so my thought was, well, of course, in America, we had to tone that down. I don't know if that's true or not, but... Uh, if I recall, it, it did have more of that consistent same atomic-like threat that was such a big part of Godzilla. I know that, you know, and, and we'll point out the at least some of the differences in these movies, American version versus U.S. I've, I've made some notes, and I think as you and I will talk, but one of the things about this this version, the, the American version of this, is the fact that there is narration from the uh, the character of uh, Shiguru, who's played by Kenji Sahara in uh, the movie, the narration is done by Key Luke, oh. which is my first Star Trek reference. Now, if you ever anyone out there thought that I wasn't going to be able to find one, uh, I, I know some of you know right off the bat what logical one, but um, Key Luke surprised me a little bit. I didn't realize, I just didn't remember that he had done narration for this. He's got a very distinctive voice. It, it, you pick up on him right away, at least I did. Key Luke is a well-known actor who's, who's been in so many things. Dating back to the 1930s, he was uh, number one son, Lee Chan, in the Charlie Chan films. He was also in a uh, one of the Mr. Moto films with uh, Peter Lorre uh, that was originally supposed to be a Charlie Chan film. And they ended up using his footage as number one son and, and brought his character into that movie. Of course, he was Master Poe in, in the popular Kung Fu series. He was in a third season episode of Star Trek called Whom Gods Destroy. He played Governor Donald Corey, the episode that features Garth of Izar and Yvonne Craig, a.k.a. Batgirl. She plays a uh, Ryan Slave Girl in that, so... His narration in this movie is for the American version. It's not in the Japanese version, apparently. You know, it actually serves a purpose. It fills in some gaps that maybe the uh, Japanese version didn't need because maybe some of the explanations given didn't need narration. But it could be that, you know, the narration was something that's a plus for the uh, American version. Then we'll talk about that, you know, because that's a note that I've seen on a couple things that... The American versions would occasionally fix some continuity errors. That happens with uh, Ghidra, the three-headed monster, is that there's major changes to that film. But one of the things they do is they kind of move some scenes around. They do some tighter editing. Didn't really have that with, with this film, but it was more so the inclusion of the narration and changing uh, some of the names for some of the um, uh, some of the items in the movie, the... Uh, uh, for example, the one of the cities destroyed, 
goes from Fukuoka to Sasebo or Sasebo. I can't remember how they pronounce that. That's because U.S. had facilities there. The name of the volcano changes from Mount Aso to Mount, Mount Toya. I have no reason why. They just they opted to do that. There's this little subtle changes, and sometimes it's not so subtle. The narration, I want to add that, again, it sounds like I'm dogging the American version, but it seems like it's just a little heavy-handed. It's like, okay, if you don't get the moral here, let me tell you, because the final narration, you know, by the narrowest of margins, man had won, our fears for now have gone up in flame and smoke. So it's like, okay, if you don't get it, we're going to feed it to you and let you know. See, that seems to follow, because we they, we have that in, in Godzilla, King of the Monsters, uh, because it's Raymond Burr doing that. And I wondered if, because they did that in Godzilla, that they said, well, we need to do that for uh, Rodan as well. The one, the last thing I want to say about comparing the American to Japanese is the des- description of Rodan's uh, characteristics is, is, is really different. In the American version, he has a 500-foot wing spread. And in the Japanese version, it's only 90-something. I guess in America, you know, the bigger the better. <laughs> I was going to so. say, that classic American exaggeration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, it's interesting the choices they make. And, you know, I don't really know how much thought they put into it. It's, I don't think they, they did very much thought at all. I mean, these movies were B-movies. They were monster films in the 50s. We love them today, and they are revered, and they have stood the test of time. However, uh, at the time... I mean, they were just cranking these these American edits out, and, and there was, you know, some thought that went into them. I do wonder, there was one line I noted that I thought was funny, and uh, I wonder if this was in the Japanese, if it was a bad translation or what, but somebody says, it's impossible, but it's also incredible. That was just kind of a funny Sometimes sort of line, and I wonder. Now, I will say the dubbing, actually, in all three of these movies is very good. It's not how you think of Japanese dubbing, where the mouths are moving, obviously saying something different. I thought it was pretty good in all three of these movies. I I would say that, that with one exception for me, I think it was the the character of Kiyo, I think, uh, played by Yumi uh, Shirakawa. She was uh, the main character, Shigeru Kaurimura, played by Kenji Sahara. She was his girlfriend, I guess, or whatever. She had a very high-pitched voice mm. that kind of annoyed me. Yeah, well, you speak of dubbing, so I'll, I'll just throw out my second Star Trek reference. George Takei, better known as Mr. Sulu from Star Trek, he did voice dubbing in this film. This was actually his first professional acting job. He talks about it in his, uh, in his autobiography. In this movie, he supposedly did at least eight or nine different characters including he did the voice of uh, Professor Kashiwagi. Kashi, is that how? I can't remember. Again, folks, I warned you we're going to butcher the names. Uh, Professor Kashiwagi, played by uh, Akihiko Harata. So that's, you know, he had one of the main main characters. He did a lot of voiceover work, but ironically, he only did one other kaiju film, and that was Godzilla Raids Again. Yeah, this this got him his, his start in Hollywood by doing these voiceover. It, and I, I remember in the book it talks about you know that it was it was good pay for what it, for what it was, and it got him got his foot in the door uh, in in Hollywood. And he said, being a Japanese American who could speak both, allowed him to to get a lot of work at the time. 
we talked about how we don't often see the monsters till later in the movie. The first glimpse we get of any destruction is at 55 minutes. It works for me because we get a lot of story, and, and I wasn't getting bored with the story. I think they it was well done. Well, and that was just Rodan. I mean, there were the prehistoric parasite insect creatures that... The Meganulon. Thank which I'm you. not sure that they ever really named very well. That Maybe a passing reference in the film. I, For one, when I saw that name, I'm like, did they mention that in the movie? I'm sure they probably did, but it didn't stick with me. Yeah, I think... Actually, I think they did in the Japanese version uh, because it was in my notes, but then I don't remember hearing it in the American version. But what did you think of Rodan himself, The how he appears and the effects? Well, you know, I mean, Rodan is, of, of all the the kaiju, I've always thought that Rodan is probably one of the more simplistic monsters, right? I mean, he, he's got giant wings that aren't necessarily as animated as they would be with better technology. His face doesn't allow for a lot of visual representation. Basically, the jaw just moves up and down. It's pretty limited. It's pretty basic. But in this film, more than I think in any other film, he's destructive. The winds that he generates are are, are powerful, and, and, his, and he flies so fast, and this movie again. I, I think he's just he's more destructive in this movie than he is in any other. Eventually, you know, Rodan makes that transition as does Godzilla from being kind of the the bad guy to the good guy, so to speak, because you got other monsters that are coming up. And this is really the only true Rodan film because in every other film he's a secondary character, a supporting character. But I liked it. I I I really liked the the fact that you know he was the big bad for for at least one film and and in, in a really in a really good way this movie works for me. That's one reason I prefer the earlier movies, not just the tone, but I do think that the the monsters have a more I don't want to say realistic, but maybe a more natural look. You can see the wires very very badly, not in the long distance flying shots. Those are really good, but like more of like ground with him flying above you see the wires but when he is standing on the ground and there's dust and smoke all around him it's i think excellent i agree special effects you know talking about the the script and and the the subtle changes that were made so the the japanese version uh was had a a story by ken kuranuma uh, Takeshi Kimura and Takeo Murata. Now, Ken Kuranuma, the only other credit he had was Varan the Unbelievable. But uh, Takeshi Kimura did a lot of Toho work, uh, including Matango, the Mysterians, the H-Man. Uh, Takeo Murata did uh, Gojira and Godzilla Raids again. So you got a lot of you know, kaiju cred there. The American version, though, has a lot of cred, too. That, that isn't always the case. The American version had writing from David Duncan, who did work on The Monster That Challenged the World, The Black Scorpion. Um, he did the screenplay for The Time Machine. He did television work on uh, Men Into Space and The Outer Limits. So that's a lot of good cred there as well. I think when you're looking at the credits, though, you know, we, we've talked about the music of Akira Fukube. Uh, you know, that's, you, we got to acknowledge, he composed film or composed music for 278 films, which is just mind-boggling. From 1947, uh, as recent as 2007, he died in 2006, 
at the age of 91, his first Godzilla film was the original, Gojira, 1954. And his last was Godzilla vs. Destroya in 1995. He is credited, though, for musical notes in Shin Godzilla, which I think was fantastic. And, of course, the director, Shira Honda, one of the seminal directors of, of all Godzilla films. He directed 59 films and television shows, but Godzilla was just, you know, he, he did so many. Gojira, 1954, uh, his last being Terror of Mechagodzilla, 1975. However, he was credited for the 1977 version of Godzilla. Have you ever heard of this one? It was an Italian colorized version of the original. Joint credits were given to uh, Ishiro Honda and Italian director Luigi Colsi. That and, name is familiar. And I don't, I did not write what other any anything else that he did. I've heard of this film and I had forgot about it until I was doing the research. A poor, you know, it it's basically taking the original film, colorizing it, and and doing a different edit to it for the Italian audience. And I've heard that it's horrible, that the, the colorization is really, really bad. And you got to think, 1977, colorization really... We didn't even hear about colorization, I don't think, until almost a decade later when Turner started doing it to all those films in the late 1980s. In any case, Ashiro Honda is a legend uh, amongst the uh, Godzilla community. He died in 1993 at the age of 81. Still today, he's, he's uh, revered as, as one of the best of the best and uh, largely responsible for the Godzilla films being as iconic as they are today. Shiro Honda directed all three of the movies that we watched. Um, yes, and Akira Fukube does music for two of the three films. Although... Some of his music, in fact, a lot of his music is taken out of the American version of Rodan, which I think is a crime. It's generic uh, music is used to replace it. I don't know why they would take out that classic music. That doesn't seem to make sense. But for whatever reason, somebody in Hollywood felt, well, we'll do something better, and they threw in generic music. So another reason why I really want to see the Japanese version of Rodan. What else you got on Mr. Rodan? Uh, let's see here. We'll talk about the cast a little bit. Kenji Sahara has appeared. He plays uh, Shiguru. He play, appeared in more Godzilla movies than any other actor. From 1954's Gojira, he was in Mothra, King Kong vs. Godzilla. The list goes on and on. His last being Godzilla Final Wars in 2004. He appeared in the lead in the very first of the Ultra series, Ultra Q, as well as six other of the Ultra series, which, of course, Ultraman is part of that, including the 2008 film Superior Ultraman Eight Brothers. <laughs> so he's he's a well-known actor. Yumi Shirakawa, who played his girlfriend, starred in other films like The Mysterians, Gorath, Secret of the Talesian, The H-Man. So you've got, you've got a great cast, great directors, great writers. I will throw out one of the little tidbit here about the Mega Nulon, they did make a reappearance. They apparently appeared, and I don't remember them in this, but they're they're in there. Two thousands Godzilla versus uh, Megagyrus. Apparently, they had an appearance there. I think that kind of goes. That particular series of uh, Godzilla films did a lot of throwbacks to the originals, and and these films that we cover are from 
a particular era. And so I, I thought we'd just mention the yeah. different Godzilla eras. The Showa era ran from 1954 to 1975, which seems like it should be later than that. It should be 78. This wasn't the last Godzilla film I have 78. I have the 75 Terror of Mecha Godzilla was the last of the Showa era. Maybe it was three years later coming out in the States. I Maybe. Again, different, different uh, release dates. In any case, and then the uh, Heisei era, I believe is how it's pronounced, goes from 1984 to 1995. And the first two eras refer to who the Japanese emperor was at that time. The Heisei era starts in 84 when they rebooted and did Return of Godzilla, or as it was known here in the States, Godzilla 1985. And that was basically a sequel to the original. They ignored all of the other films and kind of rebooted it. That's my least favorite of the Godzilla eras. That particular era, the next film was Godzilla vs. Biollante. And then the 90s films, for me, there's just some goofy edits and some goofy characters, and I don't know. I, I didn't enjoy that series of films as, as much. And then you have the Millennium Era, which runs 99 to 2004. And then the present is called the Raiwa, or... I, again, I'm butchering this one. R-E-I-W-A. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I don't even know what it references. I was trying to find that online, and it's like, well, it's not the Emperor, but that references everything from 2016 going forward, which is Shin Godzilla going forward. Wow, I didn't even know uh, that it had been named yet, so interesting. Yeah, and I, and I don't know what it references. Maybe Steve Turk uh, knows who that is, or maybe one of our, our kaiju listeners out there knows what that is. I'm, I'm curious. Nonetheless, the different eras each have a different particular feel, and for me, I'm always partial to the Showa era because that's that's what I grew up watching. I don't remember watching Rodan, though, as a kid. I don't think it was really on any of the television stations that I I watched. I didn't see Rodan until, oh gosh, one of the, I don't know, probably, in all honesty, maybe this DVD might be my first time, when I got it, might be my first time seeing Rodan. I didn't have it on, I don't believe I had it on VHS that I can recall. I know that it was released on VHS, but wasn't something that I saw. This was one of my later Toho films. And as I said, it is hard to find now. If you want to add this to your collection, good luck. The classic media uh, double feature with War of the Gargantuas is going for about $130. The Sony version from 2002, which is the American dubbed version, very bare bones, is $45, which is way overpriced. Hopefully, we'll get a version of this maybe from Shout Factory or Mill Creek. Mill Creek is the one doing the the Mothra Blu-ray, so maybe Rodan isn't too far behind. You would hope. So where did you watch it this time? I mean, on which version? Well, or how did you see it? Did you have a disc of the American version, or...? I I have the 2002 Sony DVD. Oh, okay. I just was going to mention that it is on Amazon Prime, and that's where I saw it. Yeah, that's... the American version. Yeah, I still have the the, the original uh, Sony DVD that I have uh, purchased... Again, I think I bought it shortly after it was released, so it's been uh, a few years ago now. So, and it's been quite a while since I've seen it, as I mentioned. So, it's bare bones. It's not worth paying forty five dollars for. I would say, if you're going to pay that much, you can probably find the classic media version for cheaper than one hundred and thirty if you shop around. But I don't know. Everywhere I was looking, 
it was over around that price. I think people know that that's a really good series that the classic media and I got most of them except for that one. Japanese versions of the films. First time those those films were available in Japanese, with the American version also included in the set and. Uh, a few extras along the way, kind of light on the extras, but they did throw a few things on on the sets. Mostly, it was you're getting the movie in the Japanese version plus the American version if you want to do a compare and contrast, which I did do on Mothra and Ghidra. I did actually watch bits and pieces of the American version to compare and contrast to the Japanese versions. Again, I wish I'd have done that on Rodan, but I, I didn't have access to it. Anything else on Rodan? That's all that I have. I'm looking through my list, and I think that kind of covers it. Oh, well, I guess this is one thing we should mention. This was uh, it was a very successful film in New York, breaking many box office records for a sci-fi film at the time. It was also the first of the Japanese kaiju films to be in color. I had meant to mention that, so thanks for bringing that up. I would highly recommend it if you are a fan of kaiju or not. This is a movie that... You know, kaiju films can be a bit daunting. There's a lot of films, and people always want to go to Godzilla. But I would say, you know, if you if you want to venture beyond Godzilla, this would certainly be one of the first ones I think that uh, you should watch, definitely. Hi, guys. This is Steve Turk calling to let you get some feedback on the movies you're going to be covering this month. You have Rodan, uh, one of my... Actually, all three of them are some of my favorites movies of all time. But with Rodan... Uh, one of the things I've always loved about it was its combination of two different movies put together. I always think of it as being them with the giant claw thrown together, and it makes for, uh, to me, a great movie when you put the, the, the best aspects of both of those movies in, in tandem. I mean, obviously, with the small mining town and the, the, the tunnel scenes with the, um, the giant insects, but the building up of the suspense, we didn't know who they are and what's going on and that kind of thing. And, of course, um, the one guy um, going down in there trying to save or recover uh, his future brother-in-law's body um, and getting trapped down in there and eventually coming in in shock. And then when he comes out of shock, he sees the little birds and realizes um, that it's the rodent eggs that were hatching, which are already out there terrorizing the populace. I think if you look at it, in my personal view, it's like taking the best of both those movies and putting them together, and it really makes for a fun movie. Um, ironically enough, I mean, for a movie titled Rodan, which of course it's the species name, and there's two of them, it doesn't have as much screen time in the movie as you would think because of being like, like a combo type movie in that way. But um, it, it, I think it still holds up well today. I rewatched it the other day, and. Um, and as I said, I think one time before in the Monster Kid Radio when Ben saw it for the first time a few years ago, that first half of the movie was really scary to him, as he told me, because, you know, he just didn't know what was going to happen. And I can imagine, again, a young person watching it really being terrified about those early scenes. All right. I'll give you guys a call back in a little bit with my feedback on Mothra. Talk to you soon. Bye. A remote Pacific island where an expedition of world-famous scientists investigate incredible rumors of its fantastic mysteries and discover barren volcanic mountains surrounding strange green valleys. Mammoth caves that breed giant mutations. Vampire plants that devour humans. 
but most astounding of all, the tiniest women in all creation. Sacred beauties of a lost tribe which worships a monstrous creature. What is the secret of Mothra? What is the bizarre spell that awakens Mothra? as these doll-sized girls call to the super-god from captivity. Mothra, whose revenge is more devastating than any man-made weapon. Mothra, who defies warplanes. Wrecks ocean liners smashes dams and bridges. Mothra, creating hurricanes. Mothra, enveloped in a shell that no human force can penetrate. Mothra, indestructible, all-powerful, indescribable. What kind of creature is this god monster, Mothra? After a ship crashes onto a reef during a typhoon, the survivors and a rescue crew explore the island once used for atomic testing. Supposedly uninhabited, the men discover a native population and two tiny fairies who implore them to leave the island alone. They comply. However, the evil Nelson goes back on his own, kidnaps the fairies, and exploits them in a live theatrical show. A giant creature from the island is not happy, and begins a long journey to rescue them. Mothra, who hatches from an egg, swims to the mainland as a caterpillar, spins a cocoon beneath a damaged radio tower, and then emerges as a colorful moth. Mothra was released in Japan in 1961, so am I correct, Richard, that this was the next kaiju movie following Rodan, even though there's a five-year gap in there? As far as the Japanese version, I, I, there's got to be other films that were released between there. I don't have the list, but I want to say that wasn't Varan the Unbelievable from around that time period as well? I think it, it predates Mothra. So yeah, so Varan did come out in Japan ahead of Mothra, but it came out, I believe, after Mothra in the U.S. Although Varan, as we've been discussing off-camera... Um, <laughs> I don't believe appears in any Godzilla film. I mean, I'm sure someone right now is probably screaming, oh my gosh, yes. So if we're wrong, call us out on it. But I don't think so. I couldn't find that uh, Varan does, although it's it's technically part of the universe, right? It's a Toho film. I just always forget about it, and I forget that it's Toho. I think it's one of the knockoffs, but uh, and I don't even know to state definitively one way or the other. So if you say it's Toho, I believe you. <laughs> now I'm doubting myself. <laughs> Again, please call us out on our kaiju ignorance. We're not the experts. Um, well, we're not talking about Varan anyway. We're talking about Mothra. So Mothra, yes. Let's get into Mothra. Let's, 19, let's... We know it came out at 61. We know it's Toho. This, to me, I, I love this. It's probably my favorite of the three. But it starts getting a little wonky in the Toho verse with this one. A little bit, yeah. Although this is one of my favorites as well. It's a, it's a really well-made film. But yes, you, you've got the the introduction of the 
the Shobijin or the Fairy Twins, played by Yumi and Emi Ito. Yes, it's a little, a little goofy, but it's well done and not as as goofy as Godzilla dancing a jig or talking in later films. It throws a little bit more fantasy element, I guess, than we typically get in a Godzilla film. Yeah, what is it about Mothra that's so... I mean, and I always forget, you know, where Mothra comes from. He hatches out of an egg, and he's a... I I guess they call him a caterpillar, but in Mothra, it looks like he has sort of a hard shell uh, around him. But he swims, and then he's got to spin his cocoon, and cocoon, his cocoon, and then emerge, you know, as this beautiful colorful i think that's why i like him because he's so colorful it seems to be an unusual monster to be a favorite of so many people i mean it yeah it it is um you know really i think when you you look beyond godzilla it's like okay well how many of these monsters get their own film you know and like we didn't get rodan versus godzilla you know we but mothra is big enough to to get a one-on-one battle with godzilla not to mention, you know, popping up in, in numerous uh, other films uh, in supporting roles, just like Rodan does. But as well, we didn't get a Rodan trilogy of films in the 90s, but we got the Rebirth of Mothra films, which I have never seen. But they're mm. they're geared more towards kids. But uh, I've heard they're good. And, I mean, it's a trilogy of films. And I think, uh, was it Mill Creek, I think, put out a set. On, they're on Blu-ray. So on my list of things to watch. Uh, I've been wanting to watch those actually for quite a while. So, I mean, Mothra's, yeah, one of the big ones. I think besides Godzilla and probably King Ghidra, I mean, Mothra's got to be... I mean, Maybe Mothra's number two, because, again, Ghidra doesn't have his own film. He's He pops up in a lot of Godzilla films, but he doesn't carry his own, while Mothra does. And you say geared towards kids, the later ones. I think this one is, too, to a certain extent. I mean, there are characters that are children... And there is the sort of comical, comic relief news reporter in this one. So it it borders on it. I wouldn't say it ever gets like slapsticky or silly, but it definitely has elements, I think, targeted towards children. Okay, so I pulled out the Rebirth of Mothra trilogy. Um, and it... Uh, I'm trying to think who put this out. It looks like Sony put this out, actually. This is not Mill Creek. This is a Sony trilogy on Blu-ray, and uh, Rebirth of Mothra came out in 96, Rebirth of Mothra 2 in 97, and 3 came out in 98. And yeah, King Ghidorah is in these, at least it's in the third one, but uh, there's a lot of monsters in these actually. And these, they get talked about as being not as serious, but kind of think along the lines of maybe Gamera-esque. And these came out about the same time as the Gamera trilogy did in the 90s. So, yeah, I've been wanting to watch these for a long time now. And maybe I need to bump that to the top of the list. Because Carla really liked Mothra. Mothra has a slightly different look in these films. As you can kind of see from the cover, it's Mm. a little different. But still kind of the same, just modernized a little bit. So, in any case, we're kind of going off track. But Mothra, I mean, it just shows the popularity of Mothra over the years. And the other thing, too, is that Mothra is a good guy, or in this case, a good girl. You know, they call upon her to rescue the twins when they're kidnapped. And in in further movies, we'll talk about it in Ghidorah, you know, when they 
when they get into trouble, they can summon Mothra and she will come help. So that's a little different. We yeah, Mothra is never bad as far as I know. So let's talk about, you know, the fact that this is actually based on a novel. Did you know that? I did not. The novel, uh, I guess it was released kind of as a serialized uh, novel in a Japanese publication. It was called The Luminous Fairies and Mothra. Hmm. It was written by uh, Shinichiro Nakamura, Takihiko Fukunaga, and Yoshihota. The screenplay was done by Shinichi Sekizawa, who did... King Kong vs. Godzilla, Atragon, Dagara, Dogara, rather. Um, so, again, good Toho. And cred. I believe Ghidra, too, when we get to it. Yeah, so, yeah, so definitely some, some good uh, Toho cred there. Depending, again, if you watch the, the American version, U.S. writing was done by Peter Fernandez and Robert Meyerson, which also had quite a bit of creds to him here. Uh, Peter Fernandez was involved in the writing of the American versions of The Space Giants, have you ever seen The Space Giants? Mm-mm. Early days of cable TV, um, Channel 17 WTCG out of Atlanta, before it became WTBS and Superstation TBS, they would play Space Giants. It was one of the early days of cable. I remember watching Space Giants afternoons at 3 o'clock, and there was Goldar and Silvar and Gam, and it was definitely kind of think um or as like ultraman is kind of geared more towards kids space giants was geared more towards kids i loved it it was a serialized format with giant monsters and he also uh peter fernandez also wrote speed racer and was also a voice actor in a lot of the japanese animes he was a voice actor i believe on speed racer robert meyerson was a dialogue director on gamera the invincible so, again, involved in the American versions of these films. And, uh, yes, directed by Ashira Honda. And uh, the music in this one was was different. Uh, it was not Akira Fukube. The music was done by Yuji Koseki. And this was the only kaiju film that Yuji did. But I like the music. It, it, it You know, you get the Masara song that I'm not going to sing uh, that pops up in other films, and, and you get the the fairy twins who, of course, are singing, which I think is kind of cool effect, right? Because they're they're doing this kind of this chant song that basically calls to Mothra and and, and asks for Mothra's help, which we we get again in uh, Ghidra, the three headed monster, and that is actually a recurring theme. I know in some of the other movies as well, and I don't know if that's a recurring theme in the re- Rebirth of Mothra films but i would suspect probably so i thought that was cool i thought that was just kind of a a different way the monsters always tend to pop up in these films they godzilla pops up out of the water you know they're they're buried under nuclear waste and radiation and they come flying out or whatever but mothra is is kind of he's worshipped and or she's worshipped and it's god and you know they're there's chanting to their to their savior and protector and and i think that's what sets mothra apart from the other kaiju one thing i noticed about mothra and not so much in rodan even though it was in color but mothra is a beautiful movie and it's in widescreen and it's uh, got you know sweeping vistas and it's colorful thought... it's it's very definitely i i think the uh i hate to say quality but it, it it's again the the look of it you know, is unique to those early films and maybe not as much attention is paid to the scope of it later on with the oh, yeah. monster I, I rallies. Think visually, I think this was the best of the three films. I yes. mean, 
Rodan really needs a restoration there. there some of the, the print is, is a little rough. And quite frankly, I think even Ghidorah had a, a kind of a rough print at times. The, the version I was watching, it'd be nice. And I, you know, I had the, the Japanese version from Classic Media. That was the version I watched of that movie. It'd be nice to see a restoration of that. Mothra, I don't think there's probably any surprise. If this is the best of the three films, that may be why it's getting a Blu-ray release because the print may be in better condition. You know, I don't know how readily we, you know, they have access you know, to the, the Toho Library and what condition these prints are in, but I suspect that Mothra is probably in the best condition, and that's why it's getting a release. Did the Japanese version play up the aspects geared to children or the, the comedy, like the, the reporter? You get that. I mean, that's... I think that that some of that comes across in the dubbing sometimes. The whenever you have any type of dubbing, certain words or what you're hearing is not always the intent of the actor, the original intent of the actor. And that's why I always prefer the original language version because even though you may you know which you, the subtitles you're watching and reading may not always be a hundred percent accurate you're also able to hear the original inflection of the actor actress reading the lines and their intent as opposed to an actor in a studio reading lines and dubbing over and pretending and basically going off of what they're being told act scared act angry and you get oftentimes i think a caricature of what the original intent was and and i think that that's why sometimes with the dubbing and certainly as it goes on and as we get to the films of the 70s where dubbing wasn't nearly as good, I, I think you, you, you get a lot of unintentional comedy in those films. That was that was originally... There's always comedy in these films to a degree. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them have it. When By the time you get to the 80s and 90s, things turn a lot more serious. The dubbing will, will give you comedy when there really wasn't intent to it. I think with the Japanese version, what I did watch, comparing it to the American version, I think that the, that the, the humor is present in both and is intentional and is, and is presented that way. I think it's ramped up a little bit in the American version, again, because of the dubbing. Are there any plot points that, that you know of that are significantly different in the two versions? As I was trying to go over the list and, and making notes, Mothra of the three films actually has, I believe, the fewest edits. Hmm. Some of these films you know, really suffer a lot of changes, which Ghidorah certainly does. Uh, it's missing about eight minutes of footage. King Kong also suffered some, some big edits, although King Kong vs. Godzilla doesn't have the ending that you know everyone says, oh, the ending's changed. That's, that was just uh, a rumor for many years. But, I mean, the music is blatantly different in that, in that film. Um, and like with Gojira, for example, you've got all that extra footage of Raymond Burr, which is not in the original. That changes the movie entirely. Uh, it changes the tone entirely. With this film, I think the, the, the tone of the original is kept fairly intact in the, what, what I did see of the American version. I, one note was that uh, Infant Island is, is called Beirut or something, hmm. but... Minor edits, really, to this one. Um, I think that maybe again, maybe that just speaks to the fact that you know they had it good and they didn't feel like they needed to go back and 
and make any tweaks to it, whereas they, they did feel like some of them, some tweaks were needed to some of the other films, for and better what, or for worse. And I asked you the same thing about Rodan. What did you think of Mothra as far as the effects and how he looked? You mentioned Rodan for flying. His wings aren't particularly animated. I thought the fantastic thing, and I'm not really sure how they did it, but when he's flying his wing and i am demonstrating here which i know is great podcasting but they they were animated they weren't just you know straight lines flapping You're talking they, mothra yes yes mothra yes. was they had yeah advanced technology in that just a few year time span much more believable mothra is unique because you get more than one mothra right i mean you get the the caterpillar version and then you get the as, as it as it comes out of the uh, what did you call it the cocoon um comes out you get a different version of mothra and so that's that's always kind of kind of cool the transformation which we did again we don't see in every film it does appear in others it, it obviously is in this original one the first one and is done very very well and uh, I loved it. I you know I love the look of Mothra. I think Mothra, everything about this movie. I, I liked the the supporting story to this one. I liked uh, like the overall cast, um, which I guess maybe we'll talk about very briefly. Yeah. Before we go there, I just want to say, and the destruction that Mothra causes is very similar to Rodan. I mean, it's wings with. I think it's because great wind more effectively. Yeah. Well, Rodan was more like shingles fly off the roof. Mm-hmm. Woo! But here, cars are tumbling down the street and into buildings. And and let's not even forget when he's still in his caterpillar state, he shoots those the the web or the cocoon material, which we'll see in uh, Ghidra is quite effective. In fact, in some ways, that tool in his arsenal may be more effective than in that state than it is when he actually becomes the flying mother because what can he do as that other than just right his wings really hard yeah i think the caterpillar state he's actually more effective yeah yeah so you've got uh journalist uh, shinichiro fukuda is played by furinkai sakai sakai had 149 credits very well accomplished uh well accomplished actor was in shogun in 1980 for example just giving a, a reference to something that people would know of course, we have the introduction of the fairy twins, Yumi and e- Yumi and Emi Ito. They would return in Mothra vs. Godzilla and would make their final appearance in uh, Ghidra, the three-headed monster. Kayoka Kagawa played photographer Michi Hanamura. And Hiroshi Koizuma played Dr. Shinichi Chuko, who I believe also came back in another film and I could be wrong I'm looking at the list here no I'm talking I'm thinking about someone else in any case good cast very well done film I think Ashira Honda probably one of his one of his best in the uh, in the kaiju films I really you know the only thing that would potentially make this film a little better would, would have been if you would have rounded it off and had the music of uh, Akira Fukube in there but I think Yuji Koseki does a good job with the kind of the fantasy elements of the music, I think Akira would have done better, but that doesn't deter from the film at all. I think this is a, a classic and I think is one of the films. If Again, if you're diving into the kaiju films, this needs to be at the top of your list. I think I will go as far as to say, I mean, number two behind uh, the original Gojira. I think you make that as a priority and then I think Mothra needs to be number two. 
Yeah, and if you remember anything from this, it's, you know, the important newsflash lesson they give is radiation is not meant to be taken lightly. (laughs) A couple of other notes. This was actually the first Japanese monster film in which the monster didn't die. Hmm. There was also going to be apparently a prolonged explanation of the origins of Mothra and the fairy twins, but was cut for time. Uh, I think it would have been fun if we would have had the more of the origin story. Yeah, I don't think it was necessarily needed, though. No, it wasn't There's needed. a lot of... If anyone should think that it's somewhat silly as it is, I wonder if the, the backstory or explanation could have taken it even sillier. But It's I, possible, yeah, depending on what they what they did with it. The only other thing I had was the uh, the name of the the country, Rolisica, was apparently based on both U.S. and Russia. It was a hybrid of both names. Huh. So it wasn't intended to be one or the other. It was kind of a combination of Russia, America, Rolisica. Very interesting. Well, that's it for Mothra then. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with our final movie. Hi, Rich and Jeff. It's Steve again calling back. Um, with feedback about Mothra, and um, what can you say? It's one of the best kaiju movies ever, and it's also one of the the few movies that have a female monster, and it also then involves it being a heroic, or heroine, or whatever, upside creature. Um, Basically, the good guy, or good girl, or good woman, whatever it goes by. it's really interesting because if you compare this movie with the original King Kong, there are so many similarities to it. I mean, both of them involve people going to an exotic island, um, natives that worship this um, giant creature as a god. Um, this one has the difference where it has the fairies played by the, the wonderful peanuts that are, you know, the, the twins. And um, they get taken from the island, and so of course um, they and the islanders pray to the for egg, and it hatches, and the larva form goes on a beeline, pretty much right there to rescue them, and of course trashes um, Tokyo, um, goes into his cocoon form, and of course he takes um, the, the evil guy takes the. Um, the fairies away after he, because he kidnaps them from the island, takes them away to um, New Kirk City, or basically the U.S. of A. for all intents and purposes. They call it different, but I mean, you know, pretty much it's, I'm assuming it's supposed to be the U.S. And then Mothra hatches, and then Ghost flies over there, takes him out for all intents and purposes, gets the fairies, and they all come back. It has a happy ending, you know, it's one of the few movies that have a time much to have a happy ending. Um, I just always enjoy it. It's just one of those to have fun. I know um, my children and I loved it, and they still do. It's just one, again, that holds up really well, and it's just, it's just a very good film. And I think if, if you look at it, it has a lot of those King Kong analogies to it. Mysterious Island goes to the city, trashes the city. The big difference is King Kong has a very tragic ending, where Mothra has a the happy ending. And most people... When they end the movie, they have to like to end the movie with a smile on their face instead of being sad. So I think to me, that gives Mothra one up over the King Kong movie and that it ends in a more happy note. All right, I'll give you guys a call back later with some feedback for the final one Gidra, the three headed monster. 
Talk to you soon. Bye. the thrills of Ghidra, the three-headed monster. Created from an atomic fireball hurled from outer space, Ghidra, the three-headed monster, threatens man's very existence on Earth. battles Godzilla, Mothra, and Rodan for mastery of the world. Men quake before the terror of their unleashed fury. All new, all never to be forgotten, a new high in screen terror. When a meteor crashes in the hills and a three-headed monster emerges, can Mothra convince Godzilla and Rodan to stop fighting each other long enough to save the Earth from its destruction? These events were foretold by a princess turned Martian who has first-hand experience with the wrath of Ghidra, but no one believes her. Meanwhile, a sunglasses-wearing villain who thinks the princess is faking it tries to assassinate her. Plot points converge in a spectacular battle of behemoths with the fate of the planet at stake. We're back, and I want to dive into what was happening in Japan in 1964. A little harder to find. I'm not going to be able to tell you what the price of, of bread or rice was in Japan at that point, but I did find some interesting things. I think the biggest thing happening in Japan in 1964 was the Tokyo Olympic Games which was very symbolic. It was viewed as a sign that reconstruction in Japan was completing, uh, coming to an end, and that Japan was once again part of the international community. So very symbolic. And in this coming nearly, what, 19, 20 years after World War II, it was, it was a pretty big moment for Japan. The emperor at the time was Hirohito. He was the 124th emperor of Japan, had an incredibly long reign, uh, December 1926 until January 1989. We have Hayakawa Electric and Sony announced that they had completed the first electronic calculator, which I, I'm trying to think, it seems like calculators would be around longer than that, but I guess not electronic calculators. I guess 64 is, is, is would be probably the birth of that. Hmm. Channel 12 
the predecessor of TV Tokyo launched. The Tokyo Monorail begins operations. The popular Japanese-American restaurant Benihana was founded in New York by 25-year-old Hiroakai Aoki. Anime was very popular on Japanese television. A popular music show called Music Fair was launched, and it is still on the air. I have no idea what it is. Popular movies of the day, um, Zatoichi films were very popular at this time. Four Zatoichi films were released that year alone, including The Adventures of Zatoichi and Zatoichi Fight Zatoichi. Toho also released other films, including uh, Dogura, uh, Mothra vs. Godzilla, and which I, it seems like it should have been before that, but I, that was on the list. That seems weird. I could be wrong. Three Outlaw, Samurai, and Onibaba. Again, I don't know what the price of various things were, but 1964, Godzilla Mania was beginning to run wild in the uh, United States. Godzilla had been around for a decade in Japan, well-established. It was a box office success. And in the States, Godzilla was beginning to reign supreme as well. And that's where we get to our film, our final film this week, Ghidra or Ghidra, the Three-Headed Monster. Yes, and if you thought Mothra got a little bit wacky with its fantasy elements, this one, I dare say, is <laughs> bat, you know, crazy. Yeah, it, it, it's <laughs> definitely, it's trippy. It's, it's, it's a lot trippier. It gets worse, folks. I mean, I, I, again, I say that with love because I love Godzilla, but we know that there's there's smog monsters and sea monsters and jet jaguar coming in the 70s so we've got Godzilla versus Gigan I mean we know that there's some very interesting films down the road this film though I believe this may have been my first one of if not my first one of my first kaiju films I remember as a child in the early to mid 70s watching King Kong versus Godzilla and that I would have to say that's my first I think this is my second because I remember seeing this in the mid to late 70s. I had a friend, Alan Trowbridge, and he was really big into Godzilla and monster films. And I was just starting to get into that. I remember him talking a lot about Ghidra. And I think it, had been, it was on television and we watched it uh, around that time period. And this this movie played, the, the American dubbed version played a lot on uh, on television that I remember in the 70s and remember seeing it numerous times. It's one of the first Godzilla films that I had in my collection when I was getting uh, VHS tapes back in the day in the late 80s, early 90s. Ghidra was one of the first that I had. Uh, I had it in my collection before I had Gojira. I don't know that I've seen this or not, but when I put it into watch and behind the credits were little freeze frame of the other monsters that's really when it clicked for me oh this is not just about Ghidra like Mothra and Rodan where this will bring in other monsters as well it just and tell me if the Japanese version was different but the American goes right immediately into a room full of scientists something about the solar system intergalactic structure maybe the saucer people can tell us it's like we're dropped into something that's been going on and I 
had no idea what was happening. The saucer yes. people, and they're talking about them like they're common and have maybe been around before. It That's was, that way in the Japanese version oh. as well. There's there's not a lot of build up. It's you're you're kind of getting into. A story that seems like that's it, it seems like yeah we're kind of you know stepping in a few minutes into a movie is this the first one to start going cosmic with you know space and aliens I well I mean I, I think so I mean there was definitely the in in the Americanized version of King Kong versus Godzilla there was like talks of satellites and stuff like that and and that but as far as like doing the space alien thing I don't recall that we had that in any film prior to this and it becomes much more prevalent in the films that would follow the you know invasion of the astro monster and and gosh what was some of the others that, that came up uh, destroy all monsters I mean there's there's a lot of space elements that, that the aliens of course that come into play yeah this is probably one of the first and i guess you know you run out of things on earth that can be created by radiation and atomic that seems to be a a theme that kind of gets put to the wayside and you've got to find new threats and they're so they come from space yeah i mean uh, you got to think too the time period space was very popular the space race and getting to the moon and Space, you know, any type of science fiction space movies dealing with space aliens were always popular, and 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 we were going through that phase, and we were getting that from a lot of other countries, Euro- European. There was, you know, sci-fi movies coming from Europe as well, so not a surprise that 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 would become part of the the Toho universe as well, and and certainly, I'm thinking of other movies that they did in the '60s like Space Amoeba or. I think Dogara had, had otherworldly elements as well, if I recall. Yeah, you're getting that in a lot of other films, too. And, and this has got to be one of the first, but and I think it works in this one. It definitely works, but it takes a while to understand what you're watching it. I made a note at 23 minutes. WTF is going on. It seemed so disconnected, and I had no idea. And then... All of a sudden, you know, it does click in and it makes sense, but it, it takes a little while, and I just thought, what? You know, I... Yeah, this movie's written by Shinichi Sekizawa, so, I mean, he did other things in the Toho uh, universe, so I don't know, you know, what, why it, why it feels disjointed, because I, I feel that way with the Japanese version as well. The American version supposedly tried to fix some continuity errors. It suffers substantial editing. Out of the three films, this one, the U.S. version has an 85-minute running time compared to 93 minutes Japanese. So there's there's a lot that is edited. Uh, continuity errors are fixed. Uh, it's a tighter version of the film. Many actually will say that, that the U.S. version is actually better than the Japanese version because it fixes some of those continuity errors whether that was done intentionally or unintentionally uh in the original japanese version the u.s version tries to fix that but then there's other things that are that are changed for example in the u.s version ghidra arrives before the the princess plane explodes i believe because hmm. that didn't you see that in the u.s version yeah so in the japanese version ghidra arrives after the plane explodes I don't know if that really changes the intent, but that's one of the big changes that we that we see. Also, the it's Venus versus Mars. The U.S. version references Mars. 
which is what we talked about when we were doing our intro for this movie. But the Japanese version uses Venus. I don't know, again, one or the other. You know, Venusian, Martian, you know, tomato, tomato. Better than Uranus. <laughs> I knew you were giving me this look like, yes, yes, I'm going to shut up. And I there said we go. it, I'm sorry. Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, I don't know why why they... But And I don't mean to say that I don't like it. It comes together miraculously and is really quite clever. It just takes a, a long time before it, that you start to understand what's going to happen. Yeah, the and I believe the American version also suffers a, an edit in the sense that Akira Fukube's score is once again greatly changed, which there are elements, and I because I, I rewatched, I watched the Japanese version and I watched most of the American version to try to do a compare and contrast. Some of the things I saw, some of them I didn't, but the music. If I'm if I'm wrong, I, but I think that. There's elements of the original Afukabe score and then other elements that are missing. And again, I don't know why they would go through that effort of changing the music. Again, maybe someone out there can, can fill us in. I couldn't find any reason as to why that was done unless there was, you know, maybe there was some licensing issues. But again, that seems a little little weird. We were talking before and you mentioned something that I don't know if we decided if it was a significant change or not. But in the American version, Mothra is definitely a male the original Mothra has died, and this is a smaller version. They definitely call him a he, yeah, because they, you know, they say he is now keeping the island in peace. You, you didn't think they made that distinction in the Japanese version that it was now male. I don't recall that. I mean, I'm, don't quote me on that, but I don't recall that sticking out to me. I, uh, I was probably since it's been a while since I'd seen this one. Actually, I was surprised that we don't really see Mothra as a moth. We we see Mothra as the caterpillar, but you know, which again is much more effective when it comes to battling Ghidra and then you know and getting, you know, Godzilla and Rodan to kind of chill out. Yeah, I was I was a little surprised at that as to that we never see the transformation. It's not needed in the movie, but nonetheless I was a little surprised. I gotta say Ghidra is, is one of my all-time favorites. As a kid, that that sound of Ghidra, I just have vivid memories of like, oh, that's so cool, and the big three-headed dragon, and the heads just lobbing up and down. One of my favorites. Uh, you know, I've got one Godzilla figure, and I've always said I, I want to find a, a Ghidra figure, a good one, that is about the same size to, to match with my Godzilla figure. I just... For some reason, that just really clicks with me. And I, I just, a lot of memories of watching this movie a lot as, as a child. Again, it's been a long time since I've seen it. But I had this as one of my first DVDs. I had this, and I thankfully I have the classic media version of it, uh, which is now selling for over uh, $100. It's out of print. And this, again, hard film to find if you can find it. Hopefully someday we'll get a, uh, someday soon we'll get a new print of this to at least make it available again. I don't know if we'll ever get something that'll be really that much more restored because, again, I just don't know the access to the original film prints, but at least make these films available for, you know, anyone who's getting into kaiju film. It's tough for you. If you're getting into it now, good luck because these some of these films are, are hard to find. Some are easier, but some of them are just hard to find, and this is one that's 
that's going to be tricky to find out there. Yeah, I also love Ghidra. It's just... The destruction he causes is fantastic. I mean, here's a monster that can really cause mass destruction. A little disappointed in the effect of him shooting his rays out of his mouth. That's yeah. But, but yeah. minor, minor quibble. Now, here's something I do want to note, though. So... Not so much with Godzilla, because we've seen him sort of change in his appearance, but here we see Rodan looking different than he did in the first yeah. movie. Mothra even looks different. The The cocoon form is more animated. Those little balls are, yeah. are more flexible. He bends more. I don't really like the road Rodan goes down. Sort of like with a chicken head, and he, like his big, yeah. big tool in his arsenal is just sort of pecking with his beak. I mean, yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. kind of... I, I think that's a little disappointing. And what I... I know it's not nearly as drastic, but I think of of the giant claw and how everyone makes fun of the turkey bird or <laughs> the buzzard, you know? In some ways, this isn't much different. I mean... I, I You know, yeah. Somewhere right now... There's a kaiju fan that is is trying to find our address and, and is you know we need to be looking over our shoulders. But I agree with you. There's a lot of other more convincing monsters in the Toho arsenal, and there are others who aren't as convincing. Rodan, though, when you take like Rodan and compare it to Mothra and Godzilla and King Ghidorah, is probably the least effective of the four. You know, Godzilla's got a few things in his arsenal and. Again, Godzilla's effectiveness and, and his look, they're constantly making changes to these these monsters. And Godzilla's got a lot of different looks. And his look here is, you know, less menacing than it was in the original Gojira, but is more menacing than we would get at some points in the 70s. Costume changes are always changing. Godzilla's size is constantly changing. The fins are bigger, they're smaller. His tail is bigger and shorter. You know, uh, his arms, big, long. Everyone kind of, you know, makes comments like when Shin Godzilla came out or when, uh, you know, the American version of Godzilla. Oh, my God, his, his head is too small. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, yeah, you know, Godzilla has, has looked different. And there's been so many different versions. I think the in my book, everyone has its pros and cons. I think the only one that clearly was an abomination was the 98 version. That was not Godzilla at all. That was a that was a big monster, and as that said, it, it was a fun monster film. It just wasn't Godzilla. Beyond that, I like every version of Godzilla for one reason or another. You know, they they all have their their pros and cons, and I think that you know the goofy Godzilla goes with his actions in those movies and and the overall look, as opposed to the more menacing Godzilla. In some of the darker films, here, you know, we we've got uh, a Godzilla that has uh, had some damage. I think if I was reading about that, there was some damage to the head uh, in the previous film, and so there had to be some repairs made. and And there was oftentimes more than one suit used for underwater scenes as opposed to land scenes. One of the constant, though, I mean, I, we'll just give a shout out to Hiro Nakajima. The actor who plays Godzilla played him in 12 consecutive films from the original through um, Godzilla versus Gigan in 72. 
Um, he's a legend in the Godzilla films. He and he, if you look at everything he's done, he played Godzilla a lot of different ways. You know, he played Godzilla very serious. Yet that was him doing the the little dancing jig. You know, uh, he's the one that said flies at one point or is like balancing on his tail and moving in that one movie Godzilla just looks different in every, all of these films and so I think Mothra here has made there some changes and I agree Rodan is not as good in this film as, as previous Mothra you know we don't get to see as the moth but I think this version of Mothra it works it works for the film I don't think Ghidra changes as much until you get to some of the later films but I could be wrong for some reason, I think Ghidra always kind of looked the same. Maybe I'm wrong with that, but you had a basic look to Ghidra, and it always seemed to work for me. And the sound effect was always the same, and that sound effect always... I was like, oh, that's Ghidra. You know, you can hear that a mile away, and I'd, I'd know what sound effect that is. And the, the battle between the monsters, uh, you know, it starts getting silly in this movie. It will become much sillier, but... I used to not like that. I, you know, I wanted my monsters deadly. I didn't want them to be funny. But I think it started when I rewatched Godzilla versus Megalon to to review it, and that was a movie I had long despised. But I just realized how much fun it was, and I kind of wonder if you are a fan of those types of of kaiju movies. If you're also a pro wrestling fan, because that I see a lot of comparisons, you know, like almost to the point where the movie becomes good or bad based on the moves they have during their battle. Well, that's true. I mean, there's a lot of you know fans of like the Ultraman series, you know, love Ultraman because the big battle at the and each episode is basically a wrestling match of sort. Yeah, I, I think some people probably like it for that aspect, totally, and I could, I could see that. And my favorite here being that uh, Godzilla and Rodan are fighting, and I call it the tennis match uh, <laughs> with a boulder. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's not Godzilla and Rodan, because Rodan is, is watching them going back and forth. No, Rodan bounces a rock off at one point at least yeah but someone's watching him because his head goes back and forth and i made the note that that's tennis match watching yeah. a tennis match but yeah and I'm, I'm not sure what that was but and and here rodan does do something kind of cool with his wings he's standing straight up but he'll flap them to make wind to push godzilla back so yeah that's something else he can do besides fly above at supersonic speed i think that you know you have the fun battle between godzilla and rodan and then of course you know, Mothra kind of intercedes to, you know, hey guys, you know, there's a bigger threat over here. Telepathically. Yes, and then you get, uh, you get, you know. Or no, not, te- is it telepathically? I know the twins translate for them. Yes. But are they? I think so. Isn't it? Isn't it implied that there's some type of communication of some sort between? Well, there is for yeah. sure, but I can't remember if that's verbal or if it's telepathic. It, anyway. I think it's telepathic. Okay. I think. You know, the, this Godzilla here it starts off as the bad guy, right? Because up to this point, Godzilla's been destructing, you know, everything in his path. He's, you know, tore up Tokyo, and he's fought Mothra. And here, Godzilla starts off as kind of the bad guy, but he actually kind of transitions to a hero in this film. And from this point forward, 
for quite a while at least, Godzilla's fighting the bad guy, right? The bad monster. He's the one coming to Tokyo's side. It becomes, you know, in some cases, Godzilla has to be kind of convinced, so to speak. But, you know, in other times, it's just he... The big monster's tearing up Tokyo, and here comes Godzilla to save the day, and then he goes off, and, all right, I've done my job. I'm going back to the ocean again. So this is the first time we see Godzilla protecting rather than destroying and is important. I mean, that's, that's, that's a key key moment because at this from this point forward, Godzilla becomes more the hero and is that way for quite a while. But he makes that transition in this film because he does swim to shore and starts destroying and then fights Rodan, and then it's only when Mothra convinces them to help that he kind of shifts. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Okay, so this is the also the only film in the original Godzilla series where Ghidra is kind of acting on its own. Uh, in other films, it's aliens controlling Ghidra. Hmm. This is the last film for the Ito sisters appearing as the fairy twins. Uh, the fairy twins would appear again, but I believe it would be different actresses playing the playing the part. You know, this is the, this movie as we've been talking about infused a lot of comedy in, into certain elements, but there is there is a. You know, you've got the the kind of the dark plot about the the princess of Sergina being taken over by a Martian or a Venusian, depending on the version that you watch. But speaking of comedy, <laughs> when I think of Sergina, what was going on with those outfits? I, I'm like those collars. I that I'm like, what were they thinking? You know, when they when they did that, I was like. As an actor, you know, I like the assassin, right? Is is here? You know, you're the chief assassin, and here, put this nice little tutu around your head. I don't know. I, to me, when I saw that, I was like, any legitimacy as as bad people kind of seems to go out the window with those silly little collars. I don't know what they were thinking. Somebody somewhere thought that was a good idea. You got a really good cast, though. I, mean, I was thinking the Princess of Shizuna is played by. Uh, Akiko Wakabayashi, who was in also the James Bond film You Only Live Twice, uh, was also in King Kong vs. Godzilla, was in Dogura. Uh, Yosuke Natsuki plays Detective Shindo, and for some reason looked familiar, and I thought that, that he had been in lots of other films, but I was looking through the list, and like I, most of them I didn't know what he was in. He did lots of films. But I believe the only other Godzilla film he was in was Return of Godzilla, hmm. or Godzilla 85. He was in Yojimbo, which is well-known for samurai fans. Yuriko Hoshi plays uh, Naoko Shindo, was also in Mothra vs. Godzilla. Professor Ma- Miura was played by Hiroshi Kozumi. He played that same character in Mothra vs. Godzilla. Uh, one of the rare cases where characters... You have a lot of familiar faces, but oftentimes the characters in all these films are different. It's a rare case where the character is actually in more than one film. And he's actually got quite a few other uh, Godzilla films. Godzilla Raids Again, Matango, Return of Godzilla, uh, Godzilla Tokyo SOS. You've got Hisao Ito, plays Malmus, the chief assassin... And, with uh, sunglasses. With sunglasses and a nice little tutu around his neck. And you've got uh, Takashi Shimura as Dr. Tsukamoto, uh, another well-known actor in Japan, 274 credits, 
a lot of classics. He was in the original Gojira, but he's also in films like Rashomon, Kagemusha, Seven Samurai. So some some big guns under his uh, under his repertoire of films. And um, uh, Shiochi Hiroshi plays Mothra. Previously played King Kong. So hmm. two very different roles. Look at my list here. I'm looking for a little trivia, and I think that that's that's about it for me on the on the trivia. This film has probably been one of the more widely available for many years, at least, widely seen the Godzilla films because it was in syndication rather heavily. It's unfortunate that it's now out of print and very hard to find in physical media form, at least. Again, you're going to pay over $100 to get the classic media version, so I'm hoping that maybe we can get a good release of this sometime in the not-too-distant future for new kaiju fans who are diving into these films. And, or listening to this episode and think that they want to go out and get these movies, um, you're going to have to look. Probably find them cheaper on eBay, but you're going to definitely going to have to look for them. So do we rank them Mothra, Rodan, Ghidra? I would, yeah. I was surprised because, for me, Ghidra has always been one of my favorites, but now with older and wiser eyes, I'm seeing Rodan and Mothra as, as better films. Ghidra's fun, but Mothra and Rodan are much better films, and Mothra is—it's one of the best. Clearly, I mean, it, it stands. Like I said, I think when you're looking at throwing in other Godzilla films from this original era, Gojira is always going to be the number one on the list. But I think Mothra is number two. Although I will say that Godzilla Raids again is a very underrated film, and a lot of that is because it was unavailable for so many years in any format. It was released in the States as Gigantus, the fire monster, and then it was Godzilla Raids again, and even then it, it was, I think even the only VHS release it got was from, oh, I think it was, I don't think it was like uh, Good Times Video maybe released it, and it was a film that didn't play on television very much. Um, it's it's a film that's, that's, that's admittedly been very hard to find over the years. I think that one is is one of the best and one of the most, you know, least respected uh, simply because people haven't seen it as much. Mothra is well known, and uh, again, if you can, uh, you know, find Mothra icons of Sci-Fi Toho collection, you can probably find that maybe at a slightly cheaper price. I think that I have on my notes somewhere. Maybe yes, you can probably get that. Yes, that's actually still in print. Icons of Toho collection. You get it with the H Man and Battle in Outer Space. You get it for 10 bucks. Mm. So that's actually, out of these three, that's the only one that you're going to be able to find relatively easy, and you're getting it with two other good films. So look that up on Amazon if you so choose. And again, you can probably find them, as you said, they're available for streaming in some cases. Do a little searching, do a little digging, and maybe you can get some better deals. For now, we just wait and see if we can get some better Blu-ray releases ahead of that big Mothra Blu-ray and, and coming up this summer. Well, like Godzilla and Rodan, who stood on the shore and waved at Mothra as she swam away with the twins, let's wave goodbye to these three kaiju movies. Come back after this break and do our new business. Goodbye! 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 Hello, honorable gentlemen, Rich and Jeff. Um, Gidra, the three-headed monster. Out of all the Godzilla movies that I've seen, this one is, I've always rated as my favorite one. It's not always the best one. I consider that still Gojira, but... As for ones that I just enjoy to watch over and over again, um, Gidget, the Three-Headed Monster, is, the, is my favorite. And 
what can you say? I mean, you have Rodan, you have Godzilla, you have Mothra, and you have Gidra, which we know is going to be a, a, a remake or a redo coming out later this year, which is probably why you guys are doing this episode. Um, actually, later this month. And it's interesting in how the movie takes place in some parts. Um, I find it because I listen to the English and the Japanese version. And, of course, in the Japanese version, um, the woman who gets, um, I guess you could say, possessed by the alien spirit is from Venus. But in the American version, um, it's from Mars. And interestingly enough, if I remember correctly, Malford in the American version is referred to as he, and in the Japanese version is referred to as she. And, of course, you know, it's like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, you know, that kind of thing. Is it is an old um, saying that I thought was kind of interesting how they changed the planet and they changed uh, Malfur's gender, um, or maybe Malfur's transgender to just identify differently for each movie. I really don't know, <laughs> but I find that kind of interesting how the the, the sex and the and the, and the um, planet change. Uh, also. I think this is the very first movie where Godzilla goes from being the heel to the face, if I remember correctly. And I think that's another reason why it's one of my favorites, is Godzilla is now the hero, or one of the heroes of the movie. And it also shows you that strong female character of Mothra basically talking to Rodan and Godzilla, as translated by the um, the fairies, and um, them telling us, you know, that they're basically getting them to fight for humanity, and at first the two, Rodan and Godzilla, refused because of the way humanity's treated them, which is rightly so. I mean, they've always been attacked and shot, and they can't help it every time they take a step that destroys something, or fly to destroy something. It's just the way it is. Um, but then Malfur's like, okay, I'll go fight Gidra on my own, and with Gidra doing that, I mean, it's Malfur doing that heroic attack against basically no shot at all against Gidra. Um, Godzilla and Rodan changed their minds to decide they're now going to fight Gidra too because they're, you know, they can't be shown up by this little monster compared to them. So they're thinking, oh, we're going to all fight together. And the three of them end up taking down um, Gidra um, and basically getting them to fly off of his tail between his legs and that kind of stuff. And then they all go their separate ways and we have a happy ending. I think the other big noticeable thing about this movie is the um, um, humor elements that are thrown in there to make it, uh, it, it, has, it has a lot more um, comedy in, in it, which makes it um, really um, all ages friendly, so anybody could watch it and enjoy it. Now, the interesting thing is, is I'm going to throw out there for debate, I know there are people that are like, they, they hate dubbed versions. And only ever want to watch the original because that's just the way it should be. I, I enjoyed both, but I enjoyed the dubbed version a little more because that's what I grew up watching, you know, obviously, because it's American TV and that kind of stuff. But also it's one where when my kids were younger and they obviously couldn't read at the time, you could stick it in and they could understand everything that's going on, where if you stick in something for somebody that can't read English and you put in the subtitled version... <laughs> Then you're explaining to them everything that happens all the way, which makes it for a, le a less interesting experience. So I think there are reasons why things should be dubbed for those particular audiences. 
Um, but I think what I like about my copy is that it has both, so you can enjoy both parts of it and get to see what differences are and how they made those alterations or whatever in between the two, and then you can decide which one is superior um, to you. And, but also just remember that if you have somebody a lot younger, they're able to follow along. I remember at um, last year's Monster Bash, they had the giant movie, giant monster movie, um, marathon um, show, marathon or whatever. And one of them, I'm trying to remember which movie it was, but it was subtitled. And I remember seeing this family there with these um, children that were under five, and you could just see how they were just not really able to pay. I mean, they were paying attention to what's going on the screen, but they had no idea what's going on. They kept asking their dad, "What's happening? What's happening?" Because they couldn't read the subtitles on the screen. And I think that's where dubbed versions have their uh, definite um, need to help for that younger generation until the agent where they can read everything else and see what's going on, and then they can can make their own decision. I mean, I don't know which way you guys lean on that, but that's the way I'm kind of, you know, I look at it for, it's, it covers everybody to have both. All right, I'm glad you guys did this episode this month, and um, hope to see what, I'm sure to see what you guys are doing next month. You guys have a great time. See you at Monster Bash. Bye. We're back, and there's not a whole lot coming out on home video in May. Shout Factory continues with the hammer. Quatermass 2, Quatermass and the Pit are coming out on May 14th. The Alligator People, which we talked about a couple episodes ago in our Lon Chaney episode, coming out May 28th. Not horror, but I'm going to mention it until we do our disaster movie episode. Earthquake comes out on May 21st. That was a favorite of mine as a kid. I actually saw it in Sense Around. I remember my parents going to see that. Because you're a little older than me, and, and you also got to Just see... Just a little. Yeah, not that much, though, but you got to see movies a lot sooner than I did. My mom and dad sheltered me from films a lot. I do remember them talking about going to see that, and they were just like, oh my gosh, the walls felt <laughs> like they were shaking down. But there's two movies coming out on May 7th from Kino Lorber that I want to ask you about. I don't believe I've heard of either one, and they sound very interesting to me. The first one is The Man Who Haunted Himself. It's from 1970 with Roger Moore. I have no clue. The other one is The Nightcomers from 1971. It stars Marlon Brando and Stephanie Beecham, and this is a prequel to Turn of the Screw. I have not heard of that one either. Huh. I hate to buy those sight unseen, but they just sound interesting. There's a, certainly a handful of films that are, that are you know, well, actually, there's a lot of stuff coming out. There's a, a, a gosh, I can't remember the name of it now, but there's this box set of that. There's three in volume one and now three in volume two coming out of like obscure horror films that I was I have never heard of and it's just it intrigues me and you want to like oh I want to go out and get this you know and then but then you like well then but then you got how come some of these other films like Godzilla films aren't available yet these obscure films that no one's heard of are getting released and yet something like Dead of Night which is finally getting a release in July and yes cannot I, wait for that yes that film has boggles the mind that that has not been available until now and in a good format I, crazy so yeah i've never heard of either one of those intrigued though yes birthdays it's may so it's our big three we did one of our very early episodes on peter cushing christopher lee and vincent price peter cushing born may 26 1913 christopher lee and vincent price both on May 27th, but Christopher Lee was 1922 and Vincent Price was 1911.
other birthdays, those are the three that I just wanted to highlight today. Anniversaries. These are movies that came out in May over the years, and my list today are all ones that we have done in one form or another on our episode. Curse of the Fly, May of 65, Horror of Dracula, May of 58, Mothra. We didn't even mention release dates. It was released May 10th of 1962. It Lives Again, May 10th, 1978. Red Planet Mars I brought up to uh, promote your blog. Monster Movie Kid, because you did um, Monday Martian... Martian Monday. Monday Martian Monday. Yeah, I've got two more left. Yeah, so May 15th, 52. Abominable Dr. Fives, May 18th, 1971. Madhouse, May 24th, 1974. And The Brood, May 25th, 1979. We had watched that for our participation in Nightmare Junket podcast. So lots of good movies have come out in May over the years. The TV Terror Guide, Svengoolie, is a Frankenstein month. Uh, we are recording this on May 4th, and tonight Frankenstein is on. Next week, Bride. On the 18th, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And on the 25th, Ghost of Frankenstein. I will give a shout-out to uh, Justin Giallo. He put a thing on Facebook the other night, very late. He was listening to WGN Radio, and Svengoolie was a guest on a radio show there. Hmm. I can't remember the, the, the name of the show. But I immediately went online. I was up and listened to it in the wee hours of the morning. I mean, it was late. I mean, I think it was on like 1.30 in the morning. But uh, he was, yeah, being interviewed, talking about the Frankenstein month and, and talking about the show and talking about his Rondo Award, talking about he's going to a flashback convention in August in Chicago. Very interesting. So thank you, Justin, for that late night Facebook post because I... Jumped right on and, and listened to it. It was fun to fun to hear Spanguli talk. Hmm. Comet TV in May. They're having Bite Club double features. Those are vampire movies every Friday night. Vampire and the Ballerina, Planet of the Vampires, Return of Dracula, Dracula versus Frankenstein, The Vampire, Grave of the Vampire, Count Yorga Vampire, and The Return of Count Yorga. So various combinations of those will be Friday nights on Comet. TCM. Slim Pickens, there is one day where they're doing a horror marathon, and it's the very last day of the month, May 31st. Looks like all horror movies from the 30s. Uh, There's a couple other things here and there during the month. Uh, They're replaying The Power on May 20th, which I watched recently and loved, so I recommend that. Oddly, on May 25th, they're playing Santa Claus from 1959 and Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. So maybe it's Christmas in May? Uh, we, are we doing the countdown to Christmas already? I, I need to get my blog ready. Yeah. That's about it for TV Terror Guide, which is the last of our regular features. Why don't you tell us what projects you're working on, Richard? Maybe we should give a shout-out before we dive into that, talk a little bit about the Rondo Awards. We've got some of our friends won some Rondo Awards yeah. since last time. I did a, a post over at the blog about it. Gosh, I'm gonna, if I'm going to do this off the cuff, we you know I know we're going to miss people, but congratulations go out to Sam Irvin, our good friend Justin Humphreys, one for the Dr. Fives Companion. We've got uh, honorable mention for Christopher R. Mims, Guns of the Apocalypse. I believe it was a runner-up for Derek over at Monster Kid Radio. I believe he was a runner-up on the best media site, which should be best podcast, but... Don't get me started. We had 
Gosh, Raku Browning finally got into the uh, Hall of Monster Kid Hall of Fame, as did Ron Adams. We had uh, Joe Bob getting um, the Monster Kid of the Year award. I know I'm missing others. Mark Maddox, Artist yes. of the Year. Yes, his work is amazing. Any others that uh, coming off the top of your head? I know uh, Martine Beswick, Caroline Monroe, and Veronica Carlson also getting into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Gosh. I know we're missing somebody. Yeah, you know what? Um, congratulations out to everybody. It's kind of cool when you when you see these awards and you start recognizing uh, names and faces and, and knowing, of course, that two of this year's Rondo Award winners were previous guests on this podcast. Yes. I don't think that there's you know any mistaking the fact that there's a direct connection. So if you're out there and you're a writer, a filmmaker, you know, an artist, and you want next year's Rondo Award, you know the podcast that you need to be on. Justin messaged me this week and thanked us again for having him on and said he'd be happy to be on again. So I think we, we've already talked about having him back on in, in October for some Vincent Price, and I think that's uh, I'm looking forward to that. So um, anyway, I just yeah, it was a, a kind of a side note there. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. You know, um, I, I just did a bunch of reviews for Dread Media, wrapping up the Martian Mondays. Uh, with a couple of uh, more contemporary films. That's been a fun little random series of just some random Martian films, some good and some bad. Um, had an interesting discussion with uh, Steve Sullivan about Invaders from Mars because he was not aware that the UK version was uh, available on uh, on DVD, and it is, and that was kind of fun. So as, as we're now in the month of May, I've got a couple more Martian Mondays, you know, I don't have anything big planned uh, from a sci-fi creature feature perspective other than my reviews for Dread Media. I, of course, doing the Kansas City Crypt over at the Mimiverse Monthly Audio Cast. But I am doing something, I think that's it's totally off-kilter, but I know there are monster fans out there who love classic comedy. Um, sometimes they just go kind of hand-in-hand, and so... My summer series this year starts here in just a few weeks. I'm doing a Marx Brothers theme. So this is definitely not monster-related, but for anyone out there who loves Marx Brothers movies, I wanted to do something different this summer. The reason I started KC Cinephile was so that I could do things sometimes outside of the monster realm. And I haven't done that consistently. I have spurts. Anyway, Marx Brothers. Yeah, it's, it's going to be called Summer Marx is On. And it's going to go from mid-May until probably mid-September. Uh, one a week, probably midweek every Wednesday. Uh, we're going to cover, Carla and I are going to cover every Marx Brothers movie, starting with The Coconuts in 1929 and going through all of their films, through Love Happy, doing a bunch of Groucho's solo films. We will not be covering Skidoo. If you're a Marx Brothers fan or a Groucho fan, you know that movie is just too much. Uh, but I'll be talking about that as well when I do kind of a wrap-up and talk about the final films of the Marx Brothers. I love the Marx Brothers, and I haven't done those in a while, so I thought it'd be fun to do a film series on that. Now, that said, during the course of the summer, I think there's going to be uh, a good chance that we'll have maybe some Santo Saturdays coming up in the middle part of summer. I still have a few Santo films to formally review. I've reviewed everything that I've had so far in one form or another on the blog. So 
I see Santo coming this summer as well. And of course, going to Monster Bash, I hope to come back with a few more Santo films. I just got in my possession last night. I'm very excited to have this as part of my collection. The uh, the film in El Mascarada de Plata, which was supposed to be the first Santo film, and Santo did not star in it. I have a copy of that film uh, with English subtitles, which is not available anywhere. I'm not even sure if Juan has this. I know he doesn't have this version. I want to, you know, I don't think he listens to the show, but I give a shout out to uh, Daryl Brogdon, who played that movie as part of the Cinema Go-Go last uh, fall. That was uh, something he worked on. So I have a copy of that, and I'm very, very thankful for that. Beyond that, that's what's going on with, with me. What about yourself? You've got a new website. You've done some Yeah, I got sick and tired of the Facebook issue I was having, and plus, I just wanted something fresh. So it's in progress. I am migrating things over to a new host, I guess you'd call it. I built a new website. Still same address and everything you can get there. Not everything's on there, but it will be over time. The most recent stuff is there, and I, I kind of like the look. It's kind of a crisp, clean look. So I think it looks good. It looks sharp. Well, thank you. Having some issues with it, but, you know, if if there weren't issues, what challenge would there be in doing well, it? Well, at least so. you'll be able to share this link now on Facebook. Yes, yes. Uh, that fixes that big problem, so that's cool. Yep. So that's about it. Specific content. I don't really have anything special planned, but uh, just keep on keeping at it, I guess. Next month, June, is Monster Bash Month, and uh, you and I will be hitting the road on that Thursday night. I plan on flying out of uh, here as quickly as I can at 4 o'clock to get you picked up and head. We we shall head east and... uh, drive all 125 hours to get to (laughs) Mars, Pennsylvania. Uh, No, we hope to be there by noon-ish on that Friday. Caroline Monroe was supposed to be doing a QA and a about that time. She will not be in attendance. She is battling some health issues. We're awaiting news of who the new guest is and how that might tweak the schedule a little bit. But we still hope to be there by noon-ish. I think we'll be dragging come Friday night, probably. But I'm excited that it gets to work out this year. In anticipation of the bash, we know that uh, Joshua Kennedy's film House of the Gorgon is having a showing there. We are going to be uh, talking about uh, some Hammer films and some Gorgon films to kind of get us in the mood for all of the Hammer stars who are going to be there. Caroline Monroe is not, but we have Martine Beswick, Veronica Carlson, Christopher Neem. What are we going to be covering next month? We're going to watch The Gorgon, 1964. I guess when it when the Gorgon was in just you know living in an apartment, it hadn't moved to a house yet. <laughs> yes, with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. I mean, come on, Cushing and Lee. That's that's all you need to know to tune in next time. Yes, we'll also watch Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde from 1971. That features the lovely Martine Beswick, and then Dracula AD 1972 from what year? 1972? Yes, very good. I think for a second, this could be one of those Godzilla 1985 was released in 1984 kind of things. Yeah, so that has Christopher Neem in it, and uh, and actually Carolyn Monroe too, doesn't it? Uh, Yes, and uh, Christopher Lee. Well, yes. Of course, yes. Yes, and Peter Cushing. So anyway, uh, so, you know, a little mix uh, that we usually try around Monster Bash time to do films that reflect 
what is happening there, guests or movies that they're showing or, or something like that. So that'll be fun. Another month of Hammer. And we'll be talking, uh, we'll be hyping up Monster Bash next month and probably talking about things that we want to, are looking forward to seeing. I, as we were talking earlier, I'm looking forward to the screening of The Monkey's Paw from 1933, which is a previously unavailable film. So uh, Tom Weaver's bringing that in. So I'm looking forward to that. But we will be talking about Hammer and The Monster Bash next month. Yes. Until then, we invite you to give us a call and leave us feedback. You can do that at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. And we also ask you, if you can dig deep and find it in your heart, rate us on iTunes. Give us a little rating to give us a little more exposure there, hopefully. Oh, my gosh, I forgot. The one shout-out I was going to give about the Karloff play. So I'll squeeze this in here, flying off the cuff. Years ago on the blog, um, I my original blog, Monster Movie Kid, I talked about the uh, Karloff play by Randy Bowser. And I became aware of it because he was a guest on Monster Kid Radio. Derek interviewed him in a couple of episodes. That led to Derek actually attending the uh, production of the play that Randy did, which was in Oregon, that had guest Sarah Karloff there, and she became a guest on Monster Kid Radio. I acquired a copy of the play on DVD in 2015, when it was briefly available as a fundraising campaign that, that Randy was doing, because his goal was to get that film, or get the play out in uh, across the country and have different productions of it. His intent was never to do the play himself, but to create the play and have other people do it. He's really struggled with getting that. There was one production that happened that had problems, another that was going to happen and was canceled. He did a like an audio version of the play a while back, but he is making the original play now available. What I have on DVD is now available for everyone to have. Randy Bowser was not supposed to play Boris Karloff. The actor canceled at the last minute, and he does an amazing job stepping in and I think that if you're a Boris Karloff fan, now's the time to act. If you have never heard about this, go to my blog. I link out to the original Monster Kid Radio episodes so you can find out more. I give it a, a two thumbs up. It gets a, a high recommendation from me. You learn a lot of cool stuff about Boris Karloff. He, he went to the source material, used uh, one of the authors, Stephen Jacobs, who did, I think it was Karloff More Than a Monster. I think that's what he wrote. Uh, it was involved in the writing of this script. Sarah Karloff endorsed it. Um, it's a wonderful play. And now for $15, you can get it either um, through like a str- for streaming or you can get the download links to burn it onto disc yourself. It definitely needs to be in your collection if you're a classic horror movie fan or a Karloff fan. Maybe your only chance to see it. Hopefully, you know, this will get some excitement about it. Maybe someone will want to do the play again locally. I'd love to see it performed. I understand it's, it's you know, our audience is diminishing, unfortunately, with these classic uh, monsters. You know, we have new fans coming along all the time, but um, something like a play is probably a smaller audience. But it, it's a great piece of work to see and it's something you should add to your collection if you haven't already. Um, so go to my blog and you can find out everything you know you need to know about Karloff. I know that doing the link, Randy's had some very kind words yesterday on Facebook. He's very appreciative. 
He's wanting to get the word out there, and hopefully I'm going to do that by my blog post and getting a few more people aware of it. Anyway, that's my that's my plug, and I didn't get receive one dime for that. With that, then we will leave you with another song by Richard Chamberlain, Mothra's Song. No, this is, again, by Akira Ifukabe, Mothra's Song from Mothra. You can find it on The Best of Godzilla, 1954 to 1975, available on iTunes or in Richard's CD collection. Yeah.